the Buddha once said, Fools seek to pursue experience. The wise seek to understand it. We've spoken and reflected upon, had opportunity to observe what happens when we pursue experience. How it seems rather fleeting and incapable of giving us lasting satisfaction. And yet this we can see is what we're driven to do so much of the time. The Buddha suggested that this was not the occupation of the wise, pursuing experience, seeking to understand it is the occupation of the wise. And I think it's useful to note in that that There is wisdom in simply seeking to understand. One doesn't have to have already understood in order to claim wisdom in this. Or claim wisdom is perhaps the wrong. To be able to honour that there is wisdom in one. What is it to seek understanding? And what is it we seek to understand when we engage in spiritual practice? Seeking understanding is born out of beginning to recognize that the suffering we encounter in life is not due to the way life is is not an inevitable result of our existence, but arises because of our misunderstanding of the nature of life. And through our misunderstanding, our miscomprehension of the way things are, we find ourselves engaging in modes of activity or behaviour that are in conflict with life, that set us in a collision course with life, and that create an inner condition of disharmony or dis-ease that gnaws at our being. So in Dharma practice, in in this tradition, we speak of it sometimes as a wisdom tradition, a tradition that's oriented towards understanding, recognizing that it it is understanding which liberates the heart.
And what is it we seek to understand? Before we can really engage with that question, we have to acknowledge how easily and how strongly we tend to believe that we know the way things are already. And to be willing to question that. A number of years ago, on a cold February winter's morning, I was sitting in meditation in my home and having finished the uh, allotted period, I opened my eyes. And on the windowsill, about, I guess, five or six feet, two meters in front of me, there was a small snail. The beautiful brown sort of spiral shell and a grey translucent body. And as I opened my eyes, there was just a sort of, just something about it that struck me. And you may have noticed through the practice of your meditation on this retreat, how sometimes we feel really open and we can be touched by simple things due to the way we, we're sort of clearing away the habitual ways of looking. And it was like that for me on this occasion. It was like, oh wow, what a beautiful creature, I thought. And then, after a few brief moments of appreciation, my mind kicked back in. What's it doing in here? (laughs) And uh, how'd it get here? And I realised, oh, it's actually quite simple how it got here. I left the window open. Why did I leave the window open? Well, the window, the paint had been peeling and it got wet and swollen up and it was sticking and it wouldn't close. So I'd trimmed it with a plane and painted it but I had to leave it open while the paint was wet. So I left it open on this cold night and a snail had come in. So that's how it got here. Okay, it took about a moment, you know. The mind can move quite quickly. In fact, I believe the Buddha once said, and if you find it sometimes hard to catch your thoughts um, when they arise, the Buddha once said, and the Buddha was a a master of metaphor. He had a, a wonderful metaphor for almost everything. He said, I can think of no metaphor for the speed with which a thought arises in the mind. (laughs) Now, lightning has nothing on it. And we can recognise this, we see. And it was like that, that sort of, boom, this thought poured into my head about the window and the paint and the the whole thing. And then, why is it here? Well, it's cold out there. It was a frosty morning. You don't see snails in February, do you? I don't know, maybe you do, but at that time, my thought was, it's coming here to stay alive, it'll freeze out there. But I thought, there's nothing for it to eat in here, so it'll starve. And I was concerned for the snail. I thought, oh no, if I put it back outside, it'll freeze. If I leave it in here, it'll starve. And all the while I was sitting with my eyes fixed on this little body with these little beady eyes on stalks just sort of moving around. And it was just like, I was almost entranced by it. And then I was starting to become a little anxious. And then I thought, I know what? I'll put it in my neighbor's greenhouse. <laughs> it's warm. There's plenty of food. I won't tell my neighbor, I thought. Didn't think too much about that one. I was rather pleased I'd solved the problem. And I got up and reached out towards the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving. <laughs> that 
this was a number of years ago, I can still feel the visceral sort of bursting of that whole world. <laughs> because I'd cared for this creature. I'd felt for its problems. I'd even solved its dilemma. And it never existed. We so quickly tend to respond to first impressions that we don't allow ourselves time to see more deeply. And we're so busy relating to the impression and the image and the concept or the association that we stop looking to see if that's really what's going on. Because we think we already know. And probably if I'd spent all that time that I was thinking about the snail, actually looking at what I was seeing... I'd have seen it more clearly, but I didn't. I thought I was. But it's almost like a template arises in the mind, and we're looking at the template born of a a remembered image rather than at the experience. And in this way, we so often overlay the past onto the present. We overlay something that isn't actually true onto our experience. And in Dharma practice, what we are invited to do again and again is slow down and pay careful attention to what we're experiencing so that we can begin to notice where we might be filtering or layering an image or an association on top of the actuality. And there are so many ways in which we do this. There are ways in which, through not questioning the images and the the concepts we hold, we're not relating to what's actual and what's real. And consequently, it's not surprising that we find it difficult to navigate, that we keep bumping into things although we feel somehow not in harmony with what's going on, perhaps a significant amount of the time. And so we examine our perception of experience to see what's going on. The Buddha spoke of three particular misperceptions that lead to an immense amount of suffering. And the first of these misperceptions is to conceive that which is changing and transient as somehow being fixed or permanent. We talk about change a lot in Dharma teachings and Dharma practice, and it's kind of ironic because really none of us, if we were asked, would ever be likely to say, you know, we said, so tell me, do things change or do they always stay exactly the same? I can't imagine any one of us, probably since about the age of five, who would have for a moment considered saying things never change. No, they're always the same. Certainly none of us here would say that. I don't imagine. Contradict me if you like. That would be a change. Um, 
But look at how we act. Look at how we imagine things will continue. How we take an experience and project it into the future. We have a difficult moment in meditation. And suddenly my meditation's gone horribly wrong. And it's an unbearable idea that I would continue doing this. It's like we think, it's going to be like this for the rest of the retreat. I've blown it. I've lost it. It's gone. We somehow imagine that this difficult place is where we will be. And we react against that. We start, you know, making plans for packing our suitcase. I'm going home right now. I've had it with this. Or we have a moment of stillness and calm in the meditation. And we think, oh, this is good. Oh, yes, I'm here. I've arrived. And immediately visions of long retreats start coming to mind. So I could do this for weeks or months. Perhaps I should travel to Asia and ordain. And we have this, you know, sparkling meditative career already imagined. And in those moments we've forgotten that this experience is going to change. Well, we're sitting here and it's kind of like, oh, well... Yeah, we're on retreat. Ho hum. You know, it's okay. Not particularly difficult. Not particularly exciting. Just oh well. Yeah, I guess I'll just keep doing it. Nothing else to do really. <laughs> and it's like if we remembered that this isn't going to continue to be the opportunity. You know, it is a finite thing. This time we have these precious and remarkable conditions for practice, the silence, the support of this community, the teachings that we can reflect on and contemplate, that are offered. If we truly remembered or recognized how few of the days of our life these conditions are available to us, and how we are blessed we would perhaps not take for granted this opportunity for one moment. We wouldn't decide, as sometimes we do, well, you know, it's sort of halfway through the afternoon, I've done plenty of meditation, I think I'll just take a vacation. And we do sometimes, it's kind of like we, it's not that we've spaced out, we've just decided that, I think I'll have a break. I can imagine a juicy fantasy coming on and it looks rather good. (laughs) And that's something really different then our mind just gets pulled away. It's like we're undermining our resolve or our intention. And it happens most easily when we become complacent. When we start to imagine even the good health of our body that allows us to do this is something that will continue. Because it won't. It's not guaranteed. And yet so often we... Act as though things will go on. And then we're shocked when they change, or when they disintegrate or collapse. You know, there's a a story from the um, Indian spiritual classic, the Bhagavad Gita, in which uh, Arjuna, the hero, warrior hero of of the narrative, is uh, with his charioteer, Krishna, who 
represents wisdom in the story. Um, going to battle, and Arjuna asks Krishna, he says, with your vast vision of the world, what is the greatest miracle that you see? And Krishna responds, he says, the greatest miracle is that although all around them people see others dying, somehow they believe it will not happen to themselves. And we can live like this, our lives as though somehow they are forever. Although not for a moment if we were asked would we say, oh, I'm going to live forever. But like we so easily delay and put off that which is most important to us. Believing that there's another time for it. And that's not guaranteed. Every day, every day, people like you and me who thought they would be here tomorrow aren't. To contemplate change and transiency is no small thing. It can shake us to the very core of our being. And somehow because of that, it seems like we might shy away from it. We might prefer to stay in the comfort of our illusion of continuity, of things staying the way they are, even though it creates the problem that whenever something difficult is encountered, we tend to relate to it as if it will be forever and consequently feel overwhelmed by it all too easily. But there's some way we invest in the sense of permanence of things because it gives us a sense of permanence. We don't want to live in the, in the vibration of transiency because it's unsettling to us. And how do we manage to maintain this illusion? It's a remarkable illusion. The snail's got nothing on it, really. How do we do that? By not being present. As a way of illustrating this, too, you could imagine if you're going for a car journey and you're driving along the road. It's a long, straight road, maybe several miles. Imagine if you look out the front windscreen at what's in the far distance on the horizon. It's pretty much steady. It's not changing too much. It's just there, there's this image of whatever. Hills, horizon. And driving straight towards it. Out there in the future, it's not changing. Or if you should look in the rear vision mirror, or over your shoulder out the back window of the car. Now, don't do it if you're driving, of course. I'm get in trouble here, giving bad advice. If you look out the back window, what you'll see on a long straight is that it's also not changing. If you look out the side window, and again, not if you're driving, but if you look out the side window, what do you see? When you're looking at the place where you actually are, not the place where you were or the place where you're going, which don't seem to be changing very much at all, the place where you are is moving past so fast that it's flickering and blurring, and you mostly can't really see it. And that's what actually much of our experience is like. It's moving past so quickly that we don't really see it. We can't really focus on it because we're moving too quickly ourselves. And we haven't refined and developed the capacity to see clearly. And so because it's a little bit blurry, we tend to fixate on the future or the past. 
in the future, it's just an idea. Because it's an idea, it doesn't exist, we can make it fixed. We can make it solid. And we're relating to that image. Not to the future, because it isn't the future, it's an idea. It seems permanent, though. It seems staying the same. Or we're relating to the past, we think, but it's not the past. It's a mixed collection of images and ideas about and from the past. That we've somehow pasted into a collage and said, that's what it was. If you think that was the past, ask any three people who were witnessing the same event what happened. You get three pictures that are quite different in certain ways, perhaps very different. But again, because we're relating to an image, it's fixed. And that fixity of the image of the past or the projection of the future reinforces a sense of continuity and permanence and solidity that the actual experience when we look at it doesn't have. So we pay attention to the experience moment by moment. And as we steady and sustain our capacity to be connected, to abide in a conscious relationship with the experience, what we see is it begins to be changing more and more quickly. And when we can really be present, when we're not distracted, when we're not constantly pulled away into the fixed images our mind generates and engages with, it starts to reveal a a vibration that is remarkable for its fluidity. In one of the uh, sutras of the later northern or Mahayana tradition, Buddhist tradition, the Diamond Sutra. We are given the injunction of how we could see the world that I find very, very powerful. And it goes, the stanza from this teaching goes like this Thus you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lantern, a bubble and a dream. And those words evoke for me a sense of a, an evanescence, a, just a, just, it's like one image after another of something that just disappears, that just disappears. And actually that's what our experience is like when we're really close to it, when we're really in touch with it. And it gives a sense of something that we can't quite grasp. And this is unsettling. This is unsettling. So for the most part, we don't really want to see that. But we need to see it. We need to see it. Because if we can't see this clearly, it's so hard to counteract the deeply rooted tendency to grasp hold of things in the belief that they can give satisfaction, that they will last. And it's so hard to release the tendency to push away with the difficult or the threatening or the painful because we 
somehow believe that if we don't, they'll be here forever. But when we see the truth of change, quite naturally we begin to let go because it makes no sense to hold on to something that's moving, slipping through our fingers. And the image is sometimes used, it's like suffering is like rope burn. It's like where you try and hold on to something that's being pulled through your very grip and the friction of trying to hold on with the grasping of either attachment or aversion. Different expressions of the same way of engaging, of gripping onto experience. That this is the pain that we feel. So can we allow ourselves to see and to feel the implications of this? Experience is changing, 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 unstoppably. The second major misperception the Buddha spoke about that causes so much suffering is very much related to this and what I was just saying. The idea that we can get lasting satisfaction from things. Believing that they have that. And yet when we see that they're changing, there's no possibility of getting lasting satisfaction from them. It becomes obvious that this is not the place to look. As the Buddha said, when he embarked upon his journey, the spiritual journey of awakening, being myself subject to birth, ageing and death, why should I pursue those things which are also subject to birth, ageing and death? Being subject to birth, ageing and death, would it not make sense to seek for that which is not subject to birth, ageing and death? So again, the effect of understanding the way things are is to begin to let go of our investment in things, in experiences. The third major misperception the Buddha spoke about was the the tendency to see Things as having a discrete and independent existence when they don't. Tending to imagine ourselves as somehow being separate, removed, isolated from all else and seeing other beings and other things and in fact even particular experiences likewise as somehow having an independent existence. And this particular understanding, this particular seeing or misperception is very much at the heart and the root of our suffering and at the heart of the Dharma teachings of of liberation from suffering. To see that what we have conceived ourselves as is not true in the way we have imagined. We feel, and it somehow seems inevitable and almost natural, that 
I'm over here, and everybody else and everything else is over there. And that seems evidenced by the fact of our body and the fact that everybody else seems to agree that this is how it is. And yet what would it be to consider that maybe that's not quite the whole truth? We'd have to look and see, well, what is this that I consider myself to be? We'd have to examine that, and we're asked to, in Dharma practice, to ask, well, what is this experience that's happening here? And if we were to ask that question, the answer would perhaps reveal itself, well, there's sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thoughts. Those are the experiences that are happening. We can observe them. We can experience them. And this flow of experience has been going on since as long as we can remember. When we pay attention to it, we see that it keeps going on. And within it, there's the sense somehow that this is me. That this somehow is who I am. These thoughts, these feelings, this body. Or I am the owner of these experiences. That somehow they are my possessions. They belong to me. When we relate to our experience from this point of view, it compels us, it seems, to have to act out that way of relating. If this is me, then somehow I'm forced to enact the thoughts that are arising that say, I must have this, I can't bear that. The movement of fear and desire that arises when we identify with it as what we are, we feel like we have no option. I must either get rid of these thoughts or I must act on them. And so in Dharma practice, what we're saying is you don't need to act on them. You don't need to go chasing after or pushing away experience. But nor do you need to get rid of that thought that arises or that urge that arises in that way. But just experience it. And what happens is we begin to notice that, oh, it's just something that comes and goes. The Buddha suggested as a point of reflection for us. Does it make sense to take those things that come and go as being what we are? Since they're not fixed or permanent. And we see that they they don't obey our instructions. They don't appear according to our agendas. We can't decide what kind of experience we'll have. I mean, who got up this morning and decided... I think I'll feel really heavy and irritable in the morning and sort of sleepy all afternoon with a few brief tantalising moments of awareness just to sort of make me feel bad about all the time when I wasn't. Who decided that? No one. Imagine not anyway. So much of our experience, it seems to be just unfolding. And again, the Buddha said, 
that which is not in your control, does it make sense to take that as you? I mean, what does it mean to own something if it doesn't do what you tell it to? It's like claiming to own the sun or the moon. Well, you can say so if you want, but it's a little bit silly. And it's going to be a little bit embarrassing when you tell it to rise now or shine, please, and it doesn't. And yet so much of our experience of ourselves is like that. We think we're kind of in charge, running this operation, making it happen. Which presents us with the, the attractive proposition that maybe if I get it all right, I'll be able to feel really good about myself if I succeed. But of course, there is the uh, problematic side that if I don't make it happen and work the way I want, then I'm probably going to end up feeling really bad about myself. It's like we invest in our activity as a way of somehow buoying up, trying to support a sense of okayness. And yet it's so unreliable. It just can't really hold that. There's an image I was once uh, happy to hear. It was uh, given in a teaching by a... uh, a friend and teacher of mine and a, a senior monastic in the tradition, Jatindriya, spent many years in, and his name is Ajahn Sachito. He's the abbot of uh, Chithurst Monastery. He once described this beautiful image for how this is. He, he said, and I'm kind of paraphrasing him, I guess, but it was it, as though one was on an ocean journey and uh, in one's little boat, and there's the wind and the waves and the currents and you're navigating and sort of steering this way and steering that way and trying to make some headway and sort of go to where you want to go. And after a while, I start to notice, hmm, it doesn't always quite seem to work out the way I planned it. How is that? What's going on? And you go down to the engine room and you, you have a look in the mechanical equipment and you realise that the steering wheel wasn't attached to the rudder. And all the time we spent trying to go this way, trying to go that way. <laughs> and sometimes it went the way we thought. We thought, hey, that's great. That's what I was trying to do. But sometimes it went quite the other way. And I thought, what's going on? It's not working. It's telling us something about the way we're misconceiving what's going on. Our sense of being in charge of the steering wheel is an entertaining thing in one way, but... It's kind of frustrating because the wheel is not attached to the rudder of our life. That's not to say that the setting of our intentions doesn't and can't have a profound effect on the directions of our life. But in terms of what actually happens, so much more is involved. And just leaving a little bit of space for ourselves around this process, around somehow trying to get somewhere to be somewhere or to be someone. This compelling need we have to be someone and that someone is measured by what I have done, achieved, succeeded at and equally measured by what I have failed or not succeeded at. And it's so painful trying to live in that. So uncomfortable. There's no place to rest in that condition trying to be someone defined by where I am or what I've done. 
And consequently in our world we see how people are moving faster and faster to try and get to that place. And with no greater success than moving slowly. So here we try slowing down to see what else could be discovered. And again we examine this sense of my experience, what's happening, to reflect on it. I mean, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings. Did anything else, did I say images? Okay, images, they're a kind of thought really. The five senses and the mind. This, the mind that experiences thoughts and feelings which are kind of a amalgam of uh, body sensations and mental activity. That's it. That's what's happening. And interestingly, although these experiences that make up our history as we remember it, and our future as we imagine it, when we look at them directly, we see the kind of transient, insubstantial. There's nothing solid about them. I mean, where are all the thoughts you have today? Do you think they exist somewhere still? In a little sort of locker marked me? That's the thoughts I had today? That was just today, all those thoughts. Think how many thoughts and feelings and experiences of your life you've had. Hundreds and thousands and millions, if not billions, of experiences. Where are they now? They're just gone. Gone, they don't exist. Memories of them, maybe, but when the memory comes up, that's just an experience now. It's not that which happened before. It's a memory. And where are all the experiences that you will have in the future? I mean, where is the body that you're going to have in ten years' time? It's not sitting there in the wardrobe waiting for you to take it out and put it on when the time has come. But in ten years, this body will not be here. The shirt might have lasted, if I'm lucky. It's getting a bit thin. But this body will pretty much, every cell in this body, apart from a few kind of dried, calcified bits in the bones, and hopefully a few neurons, will still be here. But pretty much the rest of it's gone. And that's just the body which changes quite slowly. The thoughts, the feelings, the images that you'll have in the future, they're not waiting for you somewhere to become you. So what does that mean? What is it to contemplate or to reflect upon that? It's to feel perhaps the ungraspability of what we've conceived ourselves to be. That the conception doesn't quite match the experience because when we attach to those experiences, we believe that they're who I am. It reinforces a sense of somehow being me over here with these experiences which are mine and these qualities and these aspirations or whatever. And everybody else is out there somehow with their own and they're different than me and they're apart from me. It's that, that holding on to somehow creates the sense of separateness. And yet, 
if we look and see, we're constantly being touched by each other. We're being affected by each other. We are remarkably sensitive beings. We're not living in our independent, untouched little world over here. We know this also. We're constantly being affected by so many things. By so many things. How can we be touched by something we're separate from? How can we be affected by something that's outside of ourselves? The appearance of being separate has a certain validity or even we could say reality to it. Insofar as clearly this is me sitting over here and that is you sitting over there and somebody else sitting beside you. There's something true about that but it's not the whole truth. It's not in, in this, this teaching, this reflection, it's not that we are asked to somehow negate a sense of being who and what we are. To say, well, I thought before that I was somehow separate. And we, the, the language that's used in the, the tradition, at least as it's translated, we talk about a sense of self, of separate individual identity. And it's not that the Dharma teachings are suggesting that somehow the sense of self that we have, or the self that I had, has gone somewhere. Or that we have to somehow get rid of that sense of self. Because it has a certain place. But that we need to understand that it's not the whole truth. It's not the whole picture. What happens when we feel the presence of another? Sometimes people, not unusually, speak in the groups of feeling, resonating with, sensing the experience of another person in a way that touches so deeply one's own heart that we can recognize something profoundly familiar in what they're describing that maybe goes to the very core of our experience and when that happens there's a, a natural sense of connection that we can feel well sometimes people talk about the way that over the days of being together in silence we start to feel a sense of connection a sense of relatedness that runs deeper than the stories and the the usual forms of relationships we make in the, the world of words. And it's like we're beginning to sense something. 
or we're walking quietly on the lawn and we just see the light flickering through the leaves of a tree as the sun sets on the horizon and we're just touched by something in that. And the sense of distance or separation just dissolves. And it's not me over here looking at that over there. It's just the seeing, the sensing, the feeling, directly, immediately, without it being filtered through the idea that I am doing this or having this experience. That thought, that conception, is simply another experience. The thought that says, I am this, or this is mine, is simply another thought. It's not ultimately true. This experience is happening, is revealed. This heart is touched. This mind is stimulated. But the sense that there's somehow an owner of all this, that's separate from everything else, this we need to examine, to consider, to feel into. When we look at our body, we might look and see, it's my hand. And clearly, that's true. This is a hand. And we could say, it's my hand. Sure. No problem with that. Then we might look somewhere else and say, oh, well, that's my foot. Okay, they're really different things. Hands and feet. If you get them confused, it can cause all sorts of problems. <laughs> Shoes won't fit. Brushing your teeth becomes a little smelly. <laughs> Some people, of course, you know, for various reasons, find themselves able to interchange the functions. Which is kind of remarkable, but probably irrelevant. Um, <laughs> but what happens is we tend to see certain functions or attributes in a location, and because they're particular, we create a sense of a discreteness around it in our way of thinking because that's the way the mind operates. It thinks in terms of this and that, black and right, white, wrong and right, and sets things off in kind of somehow opposed polarities of which me and you, or self and other, is another expression. It's the way the mind seems to conceive. It's how it works. And yet if we look at our hand and say, okay, so this is a hand and that's a foot, but actually, where does the hand end and the foot begin? Where is the sign that says hand stops, foot begins? Actually, if we think about it from another perspective, the hand and the foot are connected. Obviously, I mean, again, in my biology lessons, um, it's obvious that hand and foot are connected. It's the way we think about them that suggests they are separate things. They clearly have different functions, but they're not at all separate. They have different needs, capacities, but they're not separate.
When we don't identify with the content of our experience, when we don't rely on that to somehow give us a reflection to tell us who we are, which we're seeking for a positive reflection and fearing a negative one drawn from it, which is why we are transfixed, it seems, with experience, hoping it will allow us to feel okay about me and fearing at the same time that it might not, according to whether it fulfills our expectations or our judgments. So long as we're transfixed in that way, we can't see what it is that we share. We can't see what it is that is common, that is not divided, that is not separate and is inseparable amongst, between and in and through all of us. And so this teaching of of non-self, as we call it, anatta, This teaching is to reflect upon the way we perceive or conceive of being separate, of having ownership of things that are separate. And to perhaps allow some space for not investing so deeply in that, so strongly in that. Because when we don't, something begins to open up. And sometimes in the quiet of meditation, and simply seeing experiences coming and going. And not seeing them at some kind of safe distance, but right up there, touching, feeling, sensing into each moment. It's almost like something else that isn't something else, but something else starts to be felt or sensed or recognized. And it's not something we can really put words on. And yet it's something that's quite familiar and yet at the same time fresh and new. And it's something qualitative. It's not quantitative. You can't measure it. But there's something in us that resonates to this. And there are many ways in which it can touch us. We can be touched. And what the nature of that touch reveals is a sense of of non-separateness with a sense of being located in a place that is somehow thereby cut off from other places or beings, that doesn't quite gel anymore. That whole construction begins to break down. And at the same time, of course, one is still sitting here and someone else is sitting there. And yet that's not all that's happening. And still, of course, there are thoughts and feelings and sights and sounds. And yet that's not all that's happening. It's not all that's being revealed. 
And in that in that touch, what's apparent and what's very tangible also is that the heart can feel across the distance to such an extent that the distance no longer really exists. That the dimension that the heart occupies, I'm not talking obviously about the physical heart here, but the heart of our being, could say the heart of wisdom and compassion, the heart of Dharma, that the dimension or the, the nature of what this is, and it's not something that is, but the nature of this is something has the sense, reveals that there isn't a distance between, that there isn't a space between. And that in the sense of that non-separateness, that connectedness, what the natural response is, is care and is love for that which is not other than what we are. That the, the natural innate kindness of, of our being or of of life, we could say, the benevolence, the, the love that is there at the core of each of our hearts, that we know, though perhaps at times don't always feel in contact with. Its natural character is actually to spread out, to flow out, to touch all things. And it's only because we identify with me and mine that somehow its ability, its universal capacity is constrained, is limited. And as a result, we feel isolated. We feel that loss of connection. We feel that sense of separation. <coughs> When that's what we feel, it's important to allow yourself to feel it. Because that's actually the way back to that connection. To allow yourself to feel where that connection feels absent. Without believing that this is ultimately what is true. Simply it is what is experienced. Shantideva, the uh, great uh, teacher and poet and mystic, I think of the 6th century in India, um, he once said, just as these 
limbs are seen as part of this body. Can we not see all beings as simply limbs of embodied life? He said, When acting on behalf of others, no amazement arises in me. Just like when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. He went on to speak of how when the foot is sore, the hand rubs it. Just naturally, instinctively, because clearly they're connected, they're part of the same organism. And when our hearts are open, we naturally respond to others. We care for, we wish well for. This is the nature of our being, the nature of life. And it's not like when the hand rubs the foot. This wasn't Shanti Day, but this is my book. When the hand rubs the foot, it doesn't think, wow, I'm such a great hand. The Mother Teresa of hands, I'm here rubbing this foot. What a good job I'm doing. What a nice hand I am. No, it's just, it's just, it's just what happens. And it's not like then the foot is indebted to the hand. Oh, wow, thank you. You've really helped me here. No, it's just, Obvious, that's what happens. And then at some point later on, the hand gets to sit in a nice warm pocket while the foot has to schlep around carrying it. <laughs> the roll switches when it's appropriate. At the heart of wisdom and compassion is the understanding that we are not separate. that we cannot actually be separated from the totality of life. Only in our conceiving does it happen. Only in our minds. And in that conceiving we become afraid. And in that fear, the heart closes down. And it's like a wave on the ocean. Just going along in the ocean, having a nice time doing what waves do. Waving, I guess. Um, and things are probably okay for the first little while. You know, Think of that as childhood, maybe, if we were fortunate, which actually probably most of us weren't. Um, so maybe it was pretty turbulent even at the beginning stage. Pretty hard. Very hard sometimes. But nonetheless, we're travelling along. And then somewhere in the distance, something is happening. It's the shore. What we see is these waves going towards the shore, crashing into the shore, being destroyed, it seems. And a wave going towards the shore. One would start to get a little bit worried. It's like, just a moment, where's reverse gear? You know, (laughs) There isn't one. Life goes inexorably in that direction, to death. And so far as the wave is concerned, it's going towards the shore. And it's, going to get a little bit worried, it would seem. Seeing the waves in front crash. And of course, inevitably, at some point, the wave crashes into the shore. And it seems the wave is gone at that point. But what happens to the water? What happens to the water when the wave hits the shore? 
It's unharmed. It possibly even enjoys the ride. Now that might be to put a little too much on. So long as we're identified with this body-mind which is bound for death, it's so hard to see beyond the fear of that inevitable conclusion and to actually begin to open up to the larger process that's happening. The nature of that which we are is no more subject to harm than the wave is, than the water is harmed by hitting the beach. As we start to feel that solid sense, and it's, it's kind of like a frozenness and a hardness, that sense of solidity in the core of our being, beginning to dissolve, begin to soften. It's like being a block of ice in a body of water. It feels like this is a really different thing, me, in the midst of all this, but actually water and ice aren't that different. Just water's kind of got cold and stopped moving, and then it's ice. But its nature is essentially the same. <sighs> and so as we allow ourselves to feel this life that is here, to be touched by it, by the tenderness, by the beauty, at times by the, the remarkable mystery and at other times by the the poignancy of just how it is to be alive and to feel so deeply. As we allow ourselves to be touched by all that and we examine the sense of, of me that seems to be sitting here worried or scared or somehow shrunken inside it. If we look at this really carefully with kindness, with care, we can actually start to notice it's dissolving. It's always dissolving. And unless we keep freezing it up again, it inevitably begins to soften and dissolve. The sense of boundary becomes porous. We feel someone's presence. In a way we might think, what's happening? Is that my experience or theirs? And it's neither, actually. It doesn't belong to one or the other. It's part of life. And life is in contact with itself, in communion with itself, undivided from itself. And that's its nature. And its nature is that it cares for this. And it responds. It responds. Notice how when we're not in fear, the natural response to suffering is to wish to help. When we're not in fear of our needs not being taken care of, 
We don't need to feel tight around what we have. We can share it with others who need. When we're afraid, it's hard to do that. When we're not afraid of being overwhelmed by the enormity of someone else's grief, we can allow ourselves to be there and stand with them in that place. But when we haven't yet made space in our heart for our own, we can't. Compassion is a response. Not between two different things. but a response that's expressing the nature of something that is in touch with itself, which moves through us and in us. Which when we can allow to flow, actually is profoundly healing of that deep pain of separateness. is very much the core of the suffering that we experience. Wisdom tells us we are not this, not just this, not defined by this. And compassion reveals that we are part of everything. As Nisargadatta Maharaj, the great Indian saint and mystic who uh, lived in the 20th century, he said, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. This understanding is at the heart of spiritual wisdom, compassion. This understanding is what transforms not just our life, but the world. And when we're really in touch, when we're really connected, it's like life finds a way to do what can be done. Which doesn't mean that everything can be done. It doesn't mean that all of the suffering that we may encounter is given to us to resolve. But when we're really connected, when we're not somehow isolated in ourselves, in the shell of our structures, there's a natural way that it happens. And it's important in this not to create any sense of should, how it should be, but to trust simply what comes and what is possible. Compassion is a, is a movement of loving-kindness in response to suffering. 
It's not a particular feeling necessarily, it's a response. And I'd like to share an experience I had with this just trusting what comes. I was uh, another time in India and uh, in Calcutta visiting one of the homes run by the Order of Mother Teresa, the Sisters of Charity or Mercy, anyway, Mother Teresa's Order. And it was an orphanage for for mostly little babies and young children who'd been either abandoned by their impoverished parents who couldn't uh, afford to uh, feed them or whose parents had died. And I went to visit this uh, place called Shishi Bhavan, which is a children's home translates, with a friend. We went into this place and we were told when we arrived that we could only stay for a couple of hours because it's just, it was explained quite sensitively that as men we weren't in Indian culture allowed to work with children. That was just, just not done. So we understood that was the case. And we went there and uh, they said, sure, so you can just come and visit. We walked into this room about one and a half times the size of this uh, meditation hall and it was filled with cots probably more cots than there are zafus these black mats in here by a long way and in each cot were two babies and there was probably three or four of the nuns of the order moving around the room and we could see we just stood for a moment and watched they were moving quite quickly and what we saw was they were either feeding the babies or they were changing the babies and then moving on to the next and as we moved into the room this remarkable thing happened. The babies, which were probably anything up to 18 months old, I'm not really good at that sort of guessing how old they were, but they were young, um, in cots. The ones that could stand up started pulling themselves up on the sides of their cots. The ones that couldn't started reaching out. And the ones that stood up then started reaching out. It was like this sea of little faces turning towards us, reaching out. And in a moment we both realised what the situation was. It was very clear. These little babies, of whom there was this room full of them, the, the, the nurses, sorry, the nuns looking after them had time to clean them and feed them, and that was it. They didn't have time to pick them up and hold them. What they wanted was to be held. And so we just looked at each other and just went and picked up these babies and just held them. And it, these babies knew what they wanted. It was like... Like a like a limpet mind, a limpet going on, just sort of funk, and just holding these babies, and just so sweet, and just a sense of wow. And then, at some point, thinking, well, there's a room full of babies, and kind of having to pretty much peel them off, put them down, pick up another one, and hold it, and just hold it. It was heartbreaking, heartbreaking experience. And I had the sense of, I could spend my whole life doing this, and it would be as good a life as any I could imagine. But two hours came to an end, and it was time to go. We hadn't got through half the babies in the row. There was something heartbreaking in that experience, and there was also something profoundly healing. Because it's like we just did what we could. 
It's not that we solve their lives. I couldn't even bring myself, though the thought occurred to me, I could give them all my money, give up travelling, go back home, get a job. I couldn't do that. It's like in a moment like that we have to have compassion for ourselves. To see in that place I'm still in my fear or my neediness. My heart isn't yet able to do that. But having done what we could, there was something something remarkable that happened for us. It was like the sense of being part of their lives. It's still there with me. It's really interesting. Sometimes wonder if I go back to Calcutta, I haven't for a few years now, that they might be walking around on the streets, those babies. It's kind of amazing. We started a quarter past, didn't we? <laughs> Thank you for staying with me. Uh, somehow I think I usually start at half past. And uh, it's been quite a long talk. Perhaps I'll stop there. <laughs>